Welcome to Coffee and Conservation, hosted by Dr. Beth Baker, Assistant Extension Professor in the Department of Wildlife, Fisheries, and Aquaculture at Mississippi State University. From water and soil to habitat and food production, Dr. Baker and her guests discuss the necessity and complexity of conservation in the U.S. All right. Good morning. Welcome back to another edition of Coffee and Conservation. We are back with Dr. Shannon Westlake talking all things pollinator conservation, particularly in this episode, the human dimensions of conservation, which we are very excited about. So just to recap a little bit, in episode one, we were... Um, episode one in this series, I should say, we, we dove into the importance of pollinator habitat, as well as the difference between some of, some of the structural aspects of actually getting pollinator conservation on the ground between shelter and food and water and, and all of the resources that these pollinators need. But there's another elephant in the room when we start talking about conservation, uh, particularly conservation adoption and implementation. And so we're going to switch gears in this episode to talking about the human dimensions and we'll we'll explain that to you but welcome back first of all thank you yes and then to kind of kick it off for our audience how about you tell them how you became familiar with this term of human dimensions and maybe how you got interested in it and ultimately then how it came to play this central role in your research Sure. So this brings me back to my master's as well. Uh, During my master's program, uh, creating some pollinator and food gardens in upstate New York, I realized that there's a lot more to learn than, you know, just scratching the surface. And the more I talked to people about these efforts and if they'd be willing to get involved, you know, the more people were positive. They liked pollinators. They were aware of some of the struggles they were facing. But they kept repeatedly saying, I don't have the time. I don't have the time. I don't have the time to research it. I don't have the time to do it. I don't think I can do it. I don't think I have the skills for it. So for that, I put together uh, a pollinator gardening guide that just laid out some simple steps based on what I was hearing from people, just like this anecdotal evidence. And what I didn't realize I was doing at the time was kind of human dimensions work. And so human dimensions itself are these elements that are related to like a human's action or choice, essentially. It's an easy breakdown of it. Generally in natural resources or wildlife conservation, they relate to how people view or value wildlife or natural resources, how they want it to be managed or how they affect or are affected by it. And that's, you know, human dimensions is that element. It's bringing the humans into the conservation rather than them being the separate entity. So I was essentially beginning to study humans without realizing it in my master's. And then for here, for my PhD, I found out that there's that's actually a section of research that's called human dimensions. Uh, it's also known as conservation social science is the kind of like a broader term for it that encompasses some more. So I didn't realize it was a real thing. And once I did, I was like, yes, I want to keep studying that. And it's cool because you're still involved with conservation and you're looking at these things, but you're looking at the human side of it. And I when I try to teach this or tell somebody about this, I always envision like this triangle. And in conservation, we're often looking at a wildlife or a habitat component, but there's actually the third component, which is the human component. And it's just as important. And a few months ago, I was at a conference and one of the extension specialists specialists had said that uh, wildlife management is essentially people management. 
And that is so true because in the United States, over 60% of the land is in private ownership. So if we're trying to get conservation done on the landscape, we need to work with private landowners. But in order to work with them, we need to better understand them. If we want them to be adopting and using these conservation practices, we need to understand what's influencing those decisions. And that's essentially what I did with my dissertation research here. I wanted to understand how to get more private landowners involved with pollinator conservation. So to do that, I needed to understand them. What were their attitudes, their perspectives, their beliefs, uh, their knowledge of these practices? What are constraints to using these practices? So that's where that human dimensions comes in is it's still related to conservation and wildlife, but you need to understand the human component of it all. Yeah, thank you for that overview because there were so many important nuggets in there, especially for our audience, because sometimes we really want to simplify uh, conservation concern, you know, whether it's whether it's climate change or a specific species of concern. And we just, you know, there's this immediate need to want to fix the problem. But as I try to reiterate as many times as I can on these episodes, conservation is so complex and there's all these different elements, whether it's the actual science of conservation, the integration of policy, but then actually getting it on the ground has mostly to do with this human element that Mm -hmm. you're discussing. So I'm so glad you're bringing this to the forefront and putting and naming these things for people and the complexity of and how much land is actually in private ownership and how much understanding of those private landowners um, that conservationists need to be understanding of them in order to get conservation on the ground and support them in their conservation efforts because it's also not easy, which we've talked about plenty in all the other episodes of how much time it takes, resources, information, these things that could otherwise be barriers mm-hmm. for a landowner to inter- integrate conservation on their on their property from small to large scales so you you got on this path you're it's a it's a field that's now recognized and it exists and you're able to integrate it into your research um and and i know because i watched you you know kind of dig into the literature and what's available out there uh in terms of human dimensions of conservation or conservation social science How new is the field specifically related to uh, pollinator conservation? And how much information is out there? I'd say it's pretty new, uh, and there's not a ton of information, unfortunately. Uh, Human dimensions itself in conservation has been studied for decades, and there's a lot of information out there. There's been tons of great studies done. We know a lot, developed a lot of theories. But as far as pollinator conservation, the majority of the efforts have been biological and ecological. So whether it's research or actual conservation efforts on the ground are focused on, you know, what is the habitat that they need? Okay, let's get that on the ground. What are the the issues that they're facing, like parasites or chemical use? All right, now let's focus on that. But there's not as much work being done. All right, what's the human side of it? There have been some studies that have started looking at valuation of pollination and of pollinators themselves, which is bringing in some of those human elements, how people perceive them and how they value them. But there's still way more work to be done as far as that. You know, a few studies are good and they're enlightening, but we need a lot more done. So as far as, yeah, my literature review for my dissertation was was a bit thin. Um, I had to draw from different conservation practices and studies that have been done because they're all similar as far as when it comes to adoption of practices. You need to understand people. There's been a ton of work done in the water and soil conservation practice world, so that was beneficial. So it's just trying to adapt it to fit toward pollinator practices, which was one of the challenges uh, for my dissertation, but, you know, I like challenges. 
Yeah, there's plenty of those out there. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So for time's sake, too, let's jump in right away to some of the outcomes from your research. So what were some of the things that were the most surprising that you learned um, about your landowner population that you got feedback from related to the human dimensions of conservation? So whether it was their awareness or attitudes or barriers to, to adoption, what, would you, what did you find most surprising? Uh, as far as most surprising, I think probably the two biggest ones were uh, the level of adoption already. So these practices that I'm talking about refer to things like creating field borders, using conservation tillage, using cover crops. Um, so they're not necessarily for pollinators, but they will support pollinators. So this is useful because if you're in like an agricultural landscape, you know, you may be using conservation tillage for some other reason, but it's still going to be benefiting pollinators from a nesting habitat standpoint. So there was over 60% of my respondents had adopted at least one pollinator practice. And many people called in or wrote in like willing to learn more and excited mm -hmm. to learn more. And in Mississippi, the majority of our top commodities here actually don't require pollination. So that was exciting to have, you know, this level of interest in pollinator and pollinator conservation. Another surprising bit was the level of disconnection. So one of my questions related to where do they get their resources from as far as information for their general land management practices. And I asked this because I wanted to understand if we're going to be pushing more pollinator conservation extension material or outreach or things like that, we need to understand these communication channels that people are using, whether it's certain publications or if they're reaching out to certain people like uh, fish and wildlife agents or forest service agents or county extension agents or their friends and neighbors. Like we want to understand where they're getting information from. But the majority of people indicated they just weren't reaching out. They either weren't familiar with certain publications or they just didn't use them often or really at all. And then same thing as far as reaching out to certain people. They didn't, they indicated they did not reach out to these different extension agents and the people that they really talked to were their friends and neighbors. But even that was, you know, not very often. So that was surprising because, you know, you expect that people, especially in agricultural, more rural areas, have a network that they can rely on. But this is just showing this level of disconnect that we're having, which can be difficult for conservation efforts. Yeah. And that, that disconnection is so tough in rural areas sometimes and, and creating those channels can sometimes be you know we're in this area era of technology so it mm -hmm. should be really simple but these are particular populations that then it still becomes difficult for us to get them the information they need via the way they want to receive it um and that's just one part of the puzzle because that other awareness component that you talked about that maybe they're using a practice that's for um soil conservation but like conservation tillage we'll just use that one conservation or minimum tillage something that's more aimed at soil conservation but it also benefits pollinators and I've noticed as we go through so many different um, conservation education trainings that because we teach in silos mm -hmm. like here's social science here's environmental science and here's your soil conservation practices and here's your water conservation practices we lose the component that all of these things are connected in the mm -hmm. environment. Like everything we break down in our disciplines that we teach in school are actually connected in the real world and particularly in the environment. So it makes it really hard when you want to connect the dots for people that have been taught their whole lives that these things are different topics in different areas when it's all really 
interconnected um, and bringing that back together for them, especially in a short survey or in a short publication that they just have to have to like change the way they're looking at the landscape and view it a little bit differently. Um, And that systems thinking comes into play, but it's really difficult sometimes uh, maybe especially for a researcher that's like trained in water quality, but then also is working in areas of conservation education and outreach and of program evaluation as mm-hmm. as we tend to do many different things and wear different hats in our roles uh, at the university. So I'm glad you brought that up and as something that was surprising because right. it's definitely if it be- if knowledge and resources and awareness become the barrier, and us as educators or extension specialists want to fill that gap. We've got to know. We've got to know where to start with our audience, right? Um, and that was one of the the biggest findings, which wasn't a surprise. Uh, was that so? This component of one of my theories is called perceived behavioral control, and it's essentially these perceptions of control. Do they feel that they have the skills, the resources, or the time to use these practices? And that's what popped as the most influential on their intentions to use these practices in the future. So that wasn't a surprise. You know, that's what I thought going into this. You know, people have this awareness. They have positive attitudes toward pollinators and these these practices, but they're still feeling constrained. And one other thing that showed was they're lacking adequate knowledge to use them. So I specifically chose these practices knowing that they may be using them for other things. So as you were mentioning, they may have awareness of it. Maybe they're using it for soil conservation, but they didn't have the knowledge knowing that this is actually beneficial for multiple things. So these types of efforts can be beneficial to increase that knowledge because awareness does not equal knowledge. And, you know, one thing that's been surprising with this research and out there in the pollinator conservation field is We've just been inundated with all this information. Pollinators are important. Let's get involved. Plant more gardens. You know, why aren't people doing it? Well, they may not have the actual knowledge of how to do it, how to plant it, you know, how to take care of it. How long is it going to take to grow? And that's why even with my study, a lot of people, over 60% had adopted a practice, but over 30% of those had stopped using those practices. So why is that? Is it because they had awareness? Yes, this is important. I'll try it. Oh, but I don't know how to do this, so I'm not going to do it anymore. So it's trying to build that knowledge and understanding that that's what's lacking of these private landowners to get them more involved. Yeah, that's a really good point. And and any of us, I'm sure, can... can, um I'm sure it resonates with any one of us that reading how to do something and seeing how to do mm-hmm. something are really different. They are. Um, because I know landowners I work with, it's like we don't, it takes time to read and research and do the things that we do here at the university and then figure out how to apply those when really just being shown how to do something is so much more time effective and sticks with you longer and you, you know, that experiential learning stays with you in, in a much more permanent capacity. Um, so a lot of these outcomes that you had from your research led to some pretty great management recommendations or next steps in research or next steps uh, to move pollinator conservation along on the landscapes, on the, lands- on the landscape, excuse me. So do you want to talk a little bit more about some of those specific applications? Sure. Uh, that my research kind of culminated into two different outreach approach moving forward. The first would be to develop more targeted messaging. So right now, a lot of the messaging regarding pollinator conservation is very broad, and that's useful because, again, as I mentioned, you know, in the, on the last episode, whether you're in an urban area or a rural area, you can get more involved by providing habitat and trying to reduce your chemical use. But 
what does that mean? You know, like what, what kind of habitat? Again, as I was just mentioning, like how long does it take to grow? What should I be planting? So the targeted messaging can be beneficial because it can provide more information about these practices themselves. You know, what are the costs of using these practices? What are the benefits of using them? Maybe you're not interested in pollinators, but you love quail. Well, they require a lot of the same similar habitat that pollinators do. So if you show that, you know, uh, practicing using a field border, for instance, will be beneficial for pollinators, but also for quail or deer or turkey or other wildlife. Now you're increasing their awareness of this practice. Maybe they're already familiar or knowledgeable about using it, so maybe they then will use it more on their property. Also looking into some of those implementation details, you know, what does it mean to plant habitat? You know, what is involved with that? Especially for pollinators, we recommend planting native and then also making sure that you're having flowers bloom during the three different periods of the year, spring, summer, and fall. So having those types of details can be beneficial and help people get more knowledgeable and involved. And then the second step would be, as you were just mentioning, get them experience. Have more hands-on workshops where people can observe demonstration areas on the landscape, practice skills themselves, and then also connect with others in the, the landscape that are willing to get more involved with pollinator conservation, whether it's extension agents that know a little bit more about it and can help direct them or even their neighbors again maybe you don't want to plant but your neighbor does you can go help them or volunteer or things like that you know building this greater community of people connected to conservation and then again seeing and doing are definitely beneficial but reading about it cannot provide you all the information that you need so having these workshops getting people connected and practicing these skills is definitely going to be beneficial to make them more knowledgeable and more willing hopefully to use these in the future Yes. Fantastic. Thank you. I'm going to save this last question actually for our next episode because it talks about, or I was going to ask how you expect human dimension research to change in the future, especially, especially in relation to conservation. Um, But where we want to go in the next episode is how we start engaging a new generation in conservation. So I think those two kind of overlap because obviously uh, the continued connection between humans and the environment and kind of creating a different perspective will will be uh, somewhere in our discussion, I'm sure. So thank you again for coming on and tune in for our next episode. Thank you. As always, you can find more information on our website or in the show notes after the show. And we always want to acknowledge and thank our primary sponsor, the Mississippi Natural Resources Conservation Service, for their support of this podcast. Thanks for joining us for Coffee and Conservation. To find out more about the topics discussed, visit the REACH website at reach.msstate.edu or the Mississippi State University Extension Service website at extension.msstate.edu.